This Post Reports podcast is sponsored by the Association of American Railroads. New technology creates a smarter and safer freight rail network that is ready to meet the needs of tomorrow. Visit AAR.org. From the newsroom of the Washington Post. Washington Post, this is Colby. Yeah, yeah. Hi, it's Stephanie McCrumman from the Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Thursday, November 21st. Today, the Russia expert who warned Republican lawmakers about a fictional narrative on Ukraine and Amazon's problems with counterfeits. Committee will come to order. Good morning, everyone. This is the seventh in a series of public hearings the committee will be holding as part of the House of Representatives impeachment inquiry. Today we heard from David Holmes, who is the senior political officer, so a very senior career foreign service officer in the U.S. Embassy in Kiev, Ukraine. And we also heard from Fiona Hill, who is a Russia scholar and was, no longer is, but was the senior Russia expert on the National Security Council, so sort of their top person with Russia uh, as her portfolio. Dr. Hill and Mr. Holmes each provide a unique perspective on issues relating to Ukraine. Dr. Hill from Washington, D.C., and Mr. Holmes from on the ground in Kyiv. I am Shane Harris. I am the very tired intelligence and national security reporter for The Post, and I've been covering the impeachment hearings this week. The big takeaways that we saw today, David Holmes was sort of a late entrance of character into this narrative. We learned about him when Bill Taylor, we'll remember as the senior U.S. diplomat in Kiev, testified that he had been recently told about a lunch that Gordon Sondland, who is kind of a key central player in all of this, had with staff in Kiev where he was on the phone with President Trump talking about investigations. And Holmes was a witness to that conversation. He was there at lunch and he heard it. And he tells Taylor about this and Taylor tells Congress. And then fast forward a few days and there's David Holmes now telling that story in front of Congress. So he was able to talk about what he overheard at that lunch. During the lunch, Ambassador Sondland said that he was going to call President Trump to give him an update. Ambassador Sondland placed a call on his mobile phone. And I heard him announce himself several times along the lines of Gordon Sondland holding for the president. It appeared that he was being transferred through several layers of switchboards and assistance. And I then noticed Ambassador Sondland's demeanor changed and understood that he had been connected to President Trump. So that was a pretty significant part of his testimony today, basically saying, describing what it was like when that call came in, that he was able to hear the president. How were you able to hear if it was not on speakerphone? It was uh, several things. It was quite loud uh, when the president came on, quite distinctive. Uh, I believe Ambassador Sondland also said yesterday he often speaks very loudly over the phone, and I certainly uh, experienced that. Um, he, when the president came on, he sort of winced and held the phone away from his ear like this, um, and he did that for the first couple exchanges. I don't know if he then turned the volume down, if he got used to it, if the president moderated his volume, I don't know. And talking about why that call was abnormal or concerning to him. That's right. I mean, the, the, you have to imagine sort of just the setting first, right? Here is this, you know, American diplomat sitting in the middle of a restaurant in Kiev, which we should emphasize is probably, you know, crawling with Russian intelligence officers, talking on an unsecured phone with the president of the United States. Just the scene itself is enough to set any intelligence officer's hair on fire. This was a very distinctive experience. Uh, in my, I've never seen anything like this in my foreign service career. Someone 
at a lunch in a restaurant making a call on a cell phone uh, to the President of the United States. Um, being able to hear his voice, uh, it's a very distinctive personality, as we've all seen on television. Um, very colorful language was used. But what Holmes hears is the key thing. He hears the president talking about investigations and are they going to do it, referring to the Ukrainians. And later, I mean, Holmes sort of puts the pieces together, particularly when he sees this you know, now famous memo of the phone call that Trump had had with Zelensky right around this same time. Uh, in fact, I think it was just the day before and realizes that the investigations that the president and Sundland are talking about are these investigations of you know, the Biden and Burisma in the 2016 alleged election interference. So Holmes becomes a firsthand witness, really, to this conversation, which he overhears and being very clear about what he did here and then not saying anything more than what he heard. And the fact that what he is saying that he heard is Sondland on the phone directly with President Trump talking about investigations is important because it helps establish that idea that Democrats are really gunning after, which is that there was direct knowledge and direction from the president on this. That's right. That's right. And I think this is something that is kind of a piece of evidence that Democrats have been looking for to link this up to the president, knew what was going on in Ukraine and what Sondland was after. And what did you hear President Trump say to, um, I'm sorry, not President Zelensky, to Ambassador Sondland? What I hear the president, the president say to Ambassador Sondland. Yeah, he clarified whether he was in Ukraine or not, uh, and he said, yes, I'm here in Ukraine, and then Ambassador Sondland said, uh, um, said he loves your ass, he'll do anything you want. He said, is he going to do the investigation? So you heard President Trump ask Ambassador Sondland, is he going to do the investigation? Yes, sir. And then Fiona Hill, what was her importance here? So Fiona Hill was in the White House during a lot of this period of what's often been described as the irregular channel of policy that's being helmed by Rudy Giuliani, who is Trump's personal attorney. And she was able to give a lot of vivid detail uh, about her reactions to what Giuliani was doing, and particularly what John Bolton, who is the national security advisor and her boss, thought about that. And we have this famous line, which we'd already heard, but she said it out loud today, about Bolton. Bolton remarking that Rudy Giuliani... It was a hand grenade that was going to blow everyone up. Did you understand what he meant by that? I did, actually. What did he mean? Well, I think he, he meant that, obviously, what Mr. Giuliani was saying was pretty explosive in any case. Um, he was frequently on television making quite incendiary remarks about um, everyone um, involved in this, and that he was clearly pushing forward issues and ideas that would, uh, you know, probably come back to haunt us. And, in fact, I think that that's where we are today. So this vivid characterization of Giuliani just kind of out there running his own show, totally disconnected from U.S. policy, and a real feeling among these senior policy practitioners and experts that he was going to get people in trouble because there were uh, efforts that he was engaged in that weren't being coordinated. And that Fiona Hill, I think, you know, expressed to many times that she thought were, were inappropriate. It was also interesting because part of Fiona Hill's testimony was something that I think not everyone was expecting, where she kind of spoke directly to Republican lawmakers saying that they are basically pushing a false narrative, that they are insinuating that Ukraine was trying to meddle in the election, the same narrative that Rudy Giuliani was trying to push. And she was very clear that this is wrong and this is dangerous. Absolutely. In fact, I think if there was one message that she really wanted to convey 
apart from the facts that she witnessed and could speak to, it was exactly this point. And I'll just, I'll just read this. It's only a paragraph. She said, based on questions and statements I have heard, this is from her opening testimony, some of you on this committee appear to believe that Russia and its security services did not conduct a campaign against our country and that perhaps somehow, for some reason, Ukraine did. She's referring to the 2016 elections. This is a fictional narrative that has been perpetrated and propagated by the Russian security services themselves. When Fiona Hill says that, she knows from which she speaks. This is somebody who had access to classified information about what the U.S. intelligence community knows about Russia, about these Ukraine issues. In her closed-door depositions, she makes clear that there are some things she's not going to talk about that speak directly to this issue, indicating that so when she says this isn't in her opinion, she's basing this on things that she has seen and that she's privy to and was trying to convey – in as forceful a way as she could, you know, when you talk about Ukraine interfering in the election, the Russians want you to say that. They're pushing this idea is what she is saying here. And you're playing right into their hands when you continue to pursue this line and somehow by doing it also discount the idea that it was actually Russia that interfered in the elections. So with Fiona Hill and David Holmes now having testified, we are at the end of this kind of first public stage of the impeachment inquiry. What do you think are the big takeaways from what we saw over the last two weeks? And where do you think that leaves both Democrats and Republicans going forward? I think one of the the most remarkable things is the facts are not really in dispute here. I mean, even Republican members who are the most offensive of the president uh, in this story aren't really disputing that what these witnesses say is accurate or to the best of their recollection is accurate. It's really about the interpretation of these facts. And we've seen the defenses of the president you know, shift over time from there was no quid pro quo to, well, it's not a question of whether there was a quid pro quo or not. The president was exercising his authority to ferret out corruption. Okay, well, yes, he doesn't do that in other countries either, but it's perfectly his right to do it here. And sometimes aid is held up. And you're seeing all these kind of shifting explanations, but never anybody really challenging the core narrative of the facts here. And so I think as we step back and try to, you know, say, what do we make of this? You know, there's the story and then there's the politics around the story. The call happened on the July 25th. That's four months ago. The transcript's been out for two months. Maybe the ambassador thought this is this is nothing new here. But Shazam, last week you come forward with supposed this new information. There is nothing different in there than what we had on the transcript. And to me, that has been the most revealing, besides just from getting these facts out in public, seeing exactly how Republicans and Democrats are taking sides, what their arguments are going to be, and what their defense is. And it's been remarkable to me to see within that how there continues to be this effort, largely from Devin Nunes, the ranking member, but also from some others, to try and steer this away from a story about what the president did and steer it over to something that Democrats did or that Joe Biden did. For the last three years, it's not President Trump who got caught. It's the Democrats who got caught. They got caught falsely claiming they had more than circumstantial evidence that Trump colluded with Russians to hack the 2016 election. They got caught orchestrating this entire farce with the whistleblower and lying about their secret meetings with him. Uh, maybe not so remarkable in the sense that this is, this is Washington after all, and we're going to take these sides. But, you know, there is 
a way of looking at this impeachment inquiry that if you just try for a second to strip away the politics of it, right, there's a fact pattern here and a story that the American people deserve to hear. Uh, clearly, many of these witnesses agreed with that as well. And so it was just really kind of uh, remarkable to see the times that this that, that people would try and steer this away from the story at hand and try to make it about something else. I would imagine that is going to be the, the, the contours of the debate going forward. And what is happening next in the process? So it sounds like we're all going to get a, a very welcome break <laughs> next week for the week of Thanksgiving. Uh, brief the, break. Brief break. We don't expect to hear from any more witnesses. Maybe we'll see a deposition or so here, at least here and there. I think still an open question of whether the Intelligence Committee will have more witnesses after the Thanksgiving holiday. But we're getting, I think, to the end stage of this portion. And then what will happen is the committee will write up a report. I mean, because remember, they are sort of the investigative body here. So they'll write a report based on everything that they found and all the depositions from the closed door hearings. And that will then go over to the Judiciary Committee. And that is where you would see articles of impeachment actually drafted if we go to that phase. And do you think that it's basically a foregone conclusion that that committee and later that the House will vote to impeach the president? I do. I think that that seemed pretty clear going into this. But the hearings have provided some really kind of riveting moments and really laid out some just key fact patterns. And the narrative here is really quite clear. And I think the Democrats quite deliberately kept it very focused on the president and Ukraine in this issue and didn't go down too many sort of side paths, didn't bring anything from the Mueller report in as some people thought that they might. It's always felt like it's been moving in that direction, but I think that Democrats, and you can tell from their line of questioning, feel that they did their job here and that they have a very strong case. Shane, thank you so much for being our impeachment safari guide for the last few weeks. It's been a great pleasure and a lot of fun. Thanks for doing it. Shane Harris covers national security and intelligence for The Post. This Post Reports podcast is sponsored by the Association of American Railroads. New technology creates a smarter and safer freight rail network that is ready to meet the needs of tomorrow. Visit AAR.org. And now, one more thing. Oh, this is a belt, so we'll see if this is really Gucci or not. That's tech reporter Jay Green. Oh, yeah. So this is a Louis Vuitton-style bag. And he's opening up luxury items that he bought from third-party sellers on Amazon. Except some of them are fake. This is the Hermes bangle bracelet. Now, if you get really close, you'll actually see it says Hermes right in there. Jay says that this is a big problem for Amazon. And by the way, it's worth mentioning that Amazon CEO Jeff Bezos owns the Washington Post. Its platform is massive. And it's hard to police all the dark corners of it. And so you see issues crop up occasionally. Things like bogus reviews, the sale of dangerous products. And counterfeits has been an ongoing issue for Amazon for a while. What's interesting to me about it now is that Amazon has talked a lot about spending significant sums of money to address the issue. It's talked about 
hiring a lot of people to focus on the issue. And yet what was remarkable to me was how absolutely easy it is to find obvious counterfeit items on Amazon. By some estimates, Amazon has about 2.5 million third-party sellers. And on any given day, there are around 500 million products listed on the site. Amazon says 99.9% of the page views of its site land on pages that have never received a notice of potential counterfeit product. But what that means is that 0.1% roughly do. And given that Amazon has 17.6 billion page views per month, that means that about 17.6 million page views land on pages that have received counterfeit notices. When sellers sell fake items on Amazon, a variety of folks can get hurt. Clearly, the brands that are being counterfeited get hurt. But there are also buyers who are getting duped by this as well. My name is Raul, uh, Raul Noriega. And I live in Johannesburg, South Africa. I talked with one man who purchased a $1,000 Tag Heuer watch that normally would have gone for about 1300 bucks. And uh, I decided to buy it, you know, uh, knowing that it was Amazon. Uh, I didn't expect to get a, a watch that was not original. And he got it and he realized it was fake. It was like, a, like an original watch, okay? But the card, the warranty card that comes with these watches was not stamped. And honestly, Amazon didn't give him his money back until I asked him about it. And Amazon allowed them to continue selling. They didn't stop them at all. For four months, these guys were allowed, as much as they actually opened a second company. But there are other kinds of counterfeit items, supplements, baby products, toys. And there is concern that folks are buying counterfeits of those products. They can get hurt as well. One of the reasons why counterfeits proliferate on Amazon is that addressing the issue is really hard because Amazon focuses on adding selection to the website. And as vast as Amazon is, it truly is difficult to police every corner. And so instead of vetting the sellers as aggressively as some brands and some consumers might want, Amazon has instead put the onus more on the brands themselves to check the products after they've been listed and then notify Amazon of frauds. If Amazon wanted to step up these efforts, its critics would say the company needs to do it before the products ever get on the site in the first place. The critics would say Amazon needs to vet the sellers better rather than wait for products to come online and pull them down after the fact. There have been uh, complaints about any number of online marketplaces that have become sort of flea markets for fakes. Uh, but Amazon is the biggest online marketplace. And so the problem is particularly acute for Amazon. Jay Green writes about technology for The Post. That's it for today's show. Thanks for listening. On tomorrow's episode of Post Reports, the story of a family who had to weigh leaving their home in China for an uncertain life in the U.S. So for Zumrat, it all started with a phone call from the police. 
Getting a call from the police if you live in that area does not mean good things. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. This Post Reports podcast is sponsored by the Association of American Railroads. New technology creates a smarter and safer freight rail network that is ready to meet the needs of tomorrow. Visit AAR.org.